Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. Hey, it's Amal Sarba. On today's episode, we've got Professor Matt Caberline from the University of Washington. Just a stellar mind on the topic of aging and one of the leading researchers on the topic of rapamycin. The name of that drug comes up a lot when we're talking to folks about longevity. It's on the short list of drugs that seem like they have a really big impact. We're going to hear all about it. We're going to hear how it fits into a broader theory of aging regulation. So pull up a chair. This one, this one, I, I was taking notes. Okay, well, cool. I mean, we may as well just sort of kick into it and sort of warm ourselves up with a, a, a normal people conversation. You know, thanks for, for joining and agreeing to be part of this series. Uh, we've had the, the luck of having stars such as yourself of the longevity field, which I, you know, I, I think it's a relatively novel term even to describe a field called long, longevity or, or aging. And uh, I think I, I have a chuckle about that with, with virtually everybody who comes on because they've got their origin story for when they started working on sort of disease or aging or cellular aging or whatever. And you know, had people call it anti-aging or beauty products or, or some kind of nonsense before the development of, you know, like a true and legitimate field of research, which may or may, I mean, it probably it applies to everyone in the whole world. It ought to have been around for a lot longer than it has been. What's your origin story for being a longevity warrior? So, yeah, and I think probably like most of my colleagues, I have mixed feelings about the term longevity or the term anti-aging, but it does describe what we do scientifically. So my first introduction to the science of aging really came as a first-year graduate student. So I did my undergraduate degree at a state university called Western Washington University, about 90 miles from Seattle, where I was trained in basically biophysical chemistry and mathematics. And so I went to graduate school at MIT thinking I would do structural biology x-ray crystallography, something like that. I'd never thought about aging as a topic to perform research on. And I, ha I heard a talk by a professor there named Lenny Garenti, who I ended up doing my PhD thesis with, where Lenny gave a seminar on how his lab about, this was about five years prior to this lecture, had started working on the biology of aging and how they were using genetics and molecular biology to try to understand, you know, what are the genes that influence lifespan and how are they working? And I don't know what it was about that seminar, but the, the topic captivated me. It wasn't so much at that time, you know, wow, this is going to be super important for human health. It was more, this is a really complicated, fascinating biological problem. And wouldn't it be cool to study this? And so I went and talked to Lenny after the seminar and took a class from him the next semester and then ended up joining his lab for my PhD thesis work. And I've stayed in the field since then. So, you know, in some ways it was a happy accident. I look back and that, you know, I think we all have these moments in our lives where your trajectory changes. And sometimes, you know, it's just, it's a happy accident. I attended this seminar, it resonated with me and, um, and the rest is history. That's amazing. That's, um, yeah, I mean, I guess a, a, a brush with the, with the great Lenny Garanti must have that effect on people from time to time. Lenny is a fascinating character. That is absolutely true. Like, like many 
brilliant scientists. Uh, he's got his quirks, but I, I have nothing but gratitude for the fact that I was able to do my PhD in his lab. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I had the, the, the luck to sit next to, to Lenny maybe five years ago at MIT at some neuroscience event. And um, at that point, maybe in the longevity world, he, he had been connected already to one of the really big, exciting, everyone was talking about it, breakthroughs, uh, which has turned into an interesting company that, you know, um, maybe it's a little too early to tell whether it's definitively effective. The, I think the, the, the supplement is called Basis. It's the NAD plus kind of family of things. And, you know, it, it has no small connection to, to your work, right? I mean, a couple of your papers that are the most cited, I think, are all about these interventions that people might have and whether they work or don't work or what they actually are for or how they might be considered. And so maybe we can just begin with probably the most interesting thing for the casual longevity uh, listener. Hey, what should I take? Is there any proof? Like, what, you know, how will we know? I just, maybe we can map out that universe a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a really uh, challenging topic, I would say, because, and I think, you know, as you, you're probably aware, you're going to get different answers from different people in the field. So I think this question of what works, what doesn't work, what's likely to work for humans, you know, there's very little that's rock solid, and that leaves a lot of room for opinions and speculation and things like that. So what I would say is there are the things that we know are going to give you the best chance of uh, achieving a long and healthy life, maximizing health span, I guess would be another way to say it. The things we know work are a good quality diet, and even that's complicated because there's like, what does that mean? We could get into that if you want to, but good quality diet, which I would say means means don't be overweight or obese. I, I'm not a big proponent of recommending caloric restriction for people at this point. Regular exercise, super important. Good quality sleep. I've sort of added my own. So those are kind of the pillars that everybody talks about. And then people talk about- Oh, and we're going to come back to them. We're going to come back to them because I think you have more to say, but yeah. People talk about mindfulness. I like to frame it as happiness because I don't think the rest of that stuff matters if you're miserable. I think you got to figure out a way to, to find joy in life and be happy. So I put that as sort of my fourth, fourth pillar of an optimal health span. So the thing I would say is those things work and you got to have that foundation. And I don't believe that there is anything that's available to the general public right now that's going to move the needle if you don't get that foundation in place. Then you can ask, okay, if we can get that foundation in place, what might move the needle on top of that? maybe I would, should say I am extremely skeptical of the supplement world. There are lots and lots of supplements that are marketed as having anti-aging, pro-longevity, reversing aging, which I hate that term. I think that I think people should not use that term. There's lots of stuff out there that's marketed as having those effects with no real solid data to support that, even in laboratory animals. And so, you know, you talked about basis, which is nicotinamide riboside, which is an NAD precursor. Even that has a very mixed track record in the preclinical world, in animal studies. I don't believe that it extends lifespan in mice, and there's pretty good evidence to support that. So why would you think it's going to have a longevity benefit in people if it doesn't even work in laboratory animals? I think we need to, we need to have some skepticism about these things. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying we don't know, but it gets talked about as if it does. There's not a lot in the supplement world that I believe is really that there's a great case that it's modifying the biology of aging in a way that is likely to move the needle on health span. That doesn't mean that they don't, but that's my personal skepticism. We can talk about specific compounds if, you, if you're interested, but, but I'm just going to leave it sort of as a blanket statement at that for now. And then there's pharmaceuticals, right? Which would mean you need a prescription. 
to, from a doctor to legally use them. Right. I put those in maybe, sort of, a, maybe, maybe, well, to legally use them, them. yeah, <laughs> in the United States, yes. And there are a lot of people who are using prescription medications as well, sometimes without a prescription. And that would include things like rapamycin, metformin. And again, I think we have to be honest, we don't know whether these things are going to move the needle for health span or lifespan in people. I am most bullish about rapamycin. In part, that's because I've studied it a lot. I know it. The data across the field, not just my lab, it's the most robust and reproducible non-genetic intervention for extending lifespan and health span in mice, with the exception of caloric restriction. And it works everywhere and it works for everybody. And I have personal experience with rapamycin. So for that reason, if I was going to pick one thing, I would say rapamycin is the one thing that I would use for the possibility that it might improve health span and lifespan. Absolutely don't recommend. I don't, I don't, I'm not an MD. I don't make medical recommendations for other people, but I, I don't take any other supplements for longevity. I mean, I take vitamin D. I live near Seattle, so that's probably like you know, a good idea. I take a multivitamin often, not always. I'm not religious about any of it. I'm pretty skeptical about a lot of the other supplements that, that people are you know, marketing for longevity purposes. Okay, okay. Well, you've laid out a, a map. It's kind of a, a roadmap for um, the field, and you've given your, your quick annotation on, on some of these, but we got to come back and explore them. But might as well start with a place where you have a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, you've done a bunch of work on rapamycin, even potentially on the, the mechanism of action. And maybe you can, I mean, it's some people know, maybe have heard about it in the longevity world because it does come up, but it is a more widely used uh, immunosuppressive drug, right? For organ transplants, things like that. It seems like a pretty hardcore medicine. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, talk to me about it. Like, what are we doing if we're taking, taking that? So I think there's, there's a few things to unpack there. So you're right. Rapamycin was first developed and clinically approved as organ transplant rejection drugs. So particularly kidney transplant rejections. And so that's how it has been used, not exclusively, but largely in the clinical world. And this was more than 20 years ago, right? So long clinical history of use of rapamycin. And just for, for people who may not be, be in the weeds on this, so to speak, rapamycin in the clinical world is called serolimus or serolimus. So it's exactly the same drug, different word. Um, or rapamune is the branded generic version. So in the clinical world, it's been used to prevent organ transplant rejections, and it gets referred to as an immunosuppressant. And if you look at the, the label on the box, there is a long list of side effects in the context of that use case. So in people who have had an organ transplant who are taking other drugs to prevent rejection, usually strong immunosuppressants, when you put rapamycin on top of that, there's a long list of potential side effects. These are pretty high doses that people are taking on a daily basis. So I think there's a couple of questions that are unknown at this point related to use of rapamycin, what's called off-label, meaning that's not what it was approved for by FDA, use of rapamycin off-label for the possibility that it will improve health span or lifespan in people who are not organ transplant patients. One, they're not organ transplant patients, so they didn't need an organ transplant. Two, they're not taking strong immunosuppressants at the same time. And three, they're usually taking lower doses of rapamycin. And what has sort of emerged as a paradigm without, again, a ton of data to support it is once weekly dosing instead of daily dosing. So the question I would have is, number one, at organ transplant doses, would there be significant side effects in people who are not organ transplant patients? We don't know that. Number two, 
in the doses that people are using primarily for potential health span benefits, what does the, the side effect profile look like? We don't know that. We're getting data for the latter. Um, I'm actually involved in a project right now trying to collect some of that data. My impression is that most people, well, I don't know of anybody who's had like a severe side effect, meaning like life-threatening. And most people don't experience any side effects. Some people get mouth sores. That's a pretty common known side effect of rapamycin, even in organ transplant patients. Some people show an increase in blood lipids and triglycerides. The things I would think about is a potential risk, higher risk of bacterial infection, although I don't know, you know, I don't know whether that's the case at these kinds of doses. But my impression is that the side effect profile of rapamycin in people who are taking it for health span purposes is probably no worse than metformin and actually might be better than metformin, which is a different drug some people are taking for that purpose. And I think it's an open question, but my guess is that for most people, it's a pretty, it's actually a much lower risk drug than most people think. Again, not an MD, that's not medical advice, that's my opinion, which is, you know, I would say educated, but I think we still need more data to really know for sure. I see, yeah, I mean, because the vast majority of folks that opine on rapamycin do it really quickly and then move on. I guess it's because they don't have a hell of a lot of depth on the drug. And I guess we as a, as a society have limited data because it's been provided only to certain cases, right? So folks who have a lot going on with their health. I mean, if you've had a kidney transplant or something, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on, including all the other drugs that, that you're taking. But a general population study just hasn't been done, I guess. Not, nothing large, right? So there have been a few short-term small-scale trials. And I mean, again, a lot of people don't realize this. You know, people would say, well, why haven't the clinical trials been done? It's actually quite hard to get a large clinical trial done on rapamycin. And in fact, you know, I would say rapamycin is probably among, if not the leading candidates for an Alzheimer's drug. I've been pushing to get this trial done for 15 years. Why hasn't it been done? Number one, there's no financial incentive because it's off patent. Number two, FDA actually makes it really, really hard to do these trials. The hoops you have to jump through to set up a clinical trial for something like rapamycin for a new indication is non-trivial. We're, well, I shouldn't say we, I'm helping to get a clinical trial for periodontal disease for rapamycin because we published out of my lab that we can reverse periodontal disease in mice with eight weeks of rapamycin treatment. So Jonathan Ahn, who was a former grad student with me, now a professor of oral health sciences at UW, is planning a clinical trial. He's got funding. It's been like six months of back and forth nonsense with the FDA just to get the trial protocol approved. You know, they're really worried that this is a dangerous drug and, you know, you have to put all the side effects on protocol and, you know, based on the, the side effects from organ transplant patients. So it's, it takes a long time. It's a lot of work. And without a strong financial incentive, there aren't very many people who are willing to go through that pain to do the clinical trial. So it's just an unfortunate way the system is, has evolved and is set up that makes it really hard to do the clinical trials we would all like to see get done to know for sure whether or not something like rapamycin, and I'm sure this is not unique to rapamycin, actually works as well as it might to help people. And the unfortunate thing is the people who are being harmed are the patients you know, who might have been able to have their process of going into dementia delayed, halted, maybe even reversed by this drug. But, you know, it frustrates me, as you can probably tell from the tone of my voice. But it's also just an, it's an unfortunate situation in the way the system is set up. I mean, it sounds familiar, actually. I was um, 
you know, there are advocates for metformin, for example, that have a similar level of enthusiasm. And uh, they've, they've got a similar, you know, sad story too, that there's not an indication for which metformin trials would be pursued because aging itself is not an indication, right? It's like all cause mortality, you got to come up with some kind of multi-factor morbidity. Although I would say that's a little bit of a misperception in the way it gets presented and the way most people think about it. My opinion is it would not matter at all from a clinical trial design perspective if FDA said aging was a disease. You really need for a clinical trial to be approved and potentially be successful is a quantitative endpoint that you can measure that is accepted as a metric of quality or quantity of life for the patient. So even if FDA said, yep, aging is a disease, go do your clinical trial, how are you going to do a clinical trial for lifespan in a healthy population in people? You're not. I mean, you could if you had billions of dollars and you wanted to wait 20 years. I think that the idea that somehow FDA is a roadblock because they won't say aging is a disease, that's not the roadblock. The roadblock, to some extent, is the bureaucracy that just makes it really hard to get a clinical trial established and approved, and the fact that both rapamycin and metformin are off patent. So there's no, yeah, you know, big driver, right? pot of gold waiting for the company that gets the approval. Let's come to quantitative endpoints in a moment. I want to hear the case for rapamycin with a little more depth on, on the work you've done, the discoveries that you've had on how it works and, you know, wh- whether it's in mice or in, or, in a, or in human targets. I mean, if the FDA guy were listening, what's the pitch we'd give? Yeah. Well, I think for the FDA, again, the problem there is the misperception that this is a dangerous drug. So I think what I would like FDA to understand is that the doses that we're talking about in people who are not organ transplant patients, the data that we've got is pretty clear that it is that the side effect profile is anticipated to be relatively low. In fact, there are two fairly large clinical trials that have been published that Joan Manick did with Everolimus, which is a derivative of rapamycin in healthy older people. And the side effects generally were no worse than placebo. So it's pretty clear that the side effect profile is not a major concern. Okay. So safety first, but now, yeah, let's talk efficacy. Yeah. So what do we know about rapamycin? And I think, again, it depends on the context. If we're talking about aging, the biology of aging, what we know is that, so rapamycin is a drug that is a specific inhibitor of a protein called mTOR. So mTOR actually stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin. They named the protein after the drug. It's an inhibitor of this protein. And what that means is when you give the drug to a cell or an animal, it turns down the activity of the protein. So what we know from preclinical studies is that if you genetically turn down the activity of mTOR, and that can be done by knocking out the gene or knocking it down, you increase lifespan and health span in every animal model where it's been tested. Yeast, worms, flies, mice, all the major model organisms. So genetically, turning down that pathway has that effect. And you can get the same effect with the drug. So you can give those animals the drug, see increased lifespan and increased health span. And in mice, where we can actually measure health span in a much more detailed way than we can in yeast, for example, or worms, it seems like in every tissue type or organ where people have looked, rapamycin treatment is either delaying the functional declines that go along with aging, and in some cases, actually reversing the functional declines. And so that's most clear in the immune system. That's not work from my lab. That was actually from Pan Zheng's lab, where they showed that if you take an old mouse, its immune system isn't functioning as well as that of a young mouse. You give that mouse six weeks of rapamycin treatment, and at least in terms of flu vaccine response, 
the immune system starts functioning like a young mouse. So you rejuvenate the immune system function. The heart, so multiple labs have shown you can see declines in, in heart function with age in mice. You give them eight to 10 weeks of rapamycin treatment, and at least for left ventricular function, comes right back up to a youthful level. So you can rejuvenate heart function. There's multiple labs with unpublished studies showing you can rejuvenate ovarian function in female mice. There are a couple of studies showing that you can rejuvenate some aspects of cognitive function with rapamycin treatment in mice. That's not my work. That's the other thing I love about rapamycin. It's not like me. I didn't do this. Like dozens of labs across the world have found these effects over and over and over again. So that makes it very, I think, convincing case. So what we did in my lab was show if you take old mice and compare them to young mice, they develop periodontal disease, just like people do. So something like two thirds of people over 65 have periodontal disease. You can measure that in people and in mice by looking at gingival inflammation, that's gingivitis, or loss of bone around the teeth, periodontitis, or pathological remodeling of the oral microbiome. You can see all of that in people, you see all of that in mice. If we take those old mice and we give them eight weeks of rapamycin, we reverse all three of those clinically defining features of periodontal disease, including we can actually see bone regrowing around the teeth of the mice. And then we also showed that if you take old mice, so this is about the mouse equivalent of 60 years old, 20 months, you give them three months of treatment with rapamycin, you can increase, depending on the dose and the sex, you can increase remaining life expectancy after that three-month treatment by up to about 50 or 60%. And that would, again, who knows what this translates to in people if it does, but if we just do a straight, you know, sort of linear extrapolation based on a mouse's lifespan and a person's lifespan, that's about two decades for a typical 50-year-old woman. So potentially, you know, relatively significant increases in, in lifespan. And I think it's worth stating as well, people use the term health span in sometimes sloppy ways, and I'm guilty of this as well. I think it's important to say health span is not a quantitative term right now. There is no agreed upon single measure of health span where we can claim we have treated a mouse with X or a person with X and increased health span. So it's a concept. It's not a quantitative term. What I can say with rapamycin is over and over and over again, you can treat mice with rapamycin, even in middle-aged, sometimes transiently, still get relatively big increases in lifespan. And at multiple health span metrics, that would be things like periodontal disease, heart function, immune function, brain function, you can see improvements in an old mouse. So it seems like a compelling case to test in the real world. So how do you do that? So we're starting to do that in people with trials like John's periodontal disease trial, Zev Williams and Yushin Su have also been funded to do a ovarian failure trial in women out of Columbia. So that'll be exciting. And then I'm involved in something called the Dog Aging Project, where we are doing a true lifespan and health span study in pet dogs to see whether rapamycin has these effects in pet dogs. So, you know, it's been a really slow process of translation. That word means taking it from the lab into the clinical realm. It's been a slow translation process, but I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll start to get some answers in the next few years. As we've already sort of talked about, there are, I would guess, a few thousand, it might be more than that, I would guess at least a few thousand people using rapamycin off-label. There are some interesting case reports there, but you know, it's never going to be as convincing as a true randomized clinical trial. That is amazing. I mean, that is a very compelling argument uh, with really tangible endpoints. I mean, in the mouse model, it's like, it's the heart and the gums and the immune system. I mean, like, it's the key systems. And I guess the, the, the logic of the argument goes that there's some kind of 
cellular aging that this protein mTOR either abets or you know can regulate. We're lucky that we found some drug that'll operate on it, but this but, but it's essentially a cellular aging process that's getting stopped or reversed. Reversed, right? I mean, the cells are getting younger. Well, because you don't like reversing aging, of course, right? Right, exactly. I don't like that term. So I think this could get in the weeds really quick, but we'll try to take it at a, at a high level. So, you know, what is the biology of aging, I think, is, a, is an important question here. And we have to admit, we don't completely understand that biology. But what we do know is there are these cellular processes. Some people kind of refer to them as the hallmarks of aging. And that's a nice sort of collection of nine cellular processes, molecular processes that contribute to the changes that we see in an animal's physiology when you go from young to old. So those cellular processes are known. They aren't completely known. I wouldn't want to say we know everything about the biology of aging, but we know enough that we can put names to some of these things. And, and what we can do then is show that something like rapamycin, caloric restriction kind of falls in this bucket as well, at least in mice, impacts those cellular processes in a way that we would predict should have a beneficial effect on the biology of aging. And what I mean by that is they either slow those processes or they clean up, they fix the detrimental consequences of those processes. So, so and those are things like mitochondrial dysfunction, cellular senescence, epigenetic dysregulation. Those are three of the nine hallmarks of aging, things that people might have heard of. Telomere shortening is another one that a lot of people have heard of. So we know that things like mTOR affect those hallmarks in positive ways. And the way I think about it in my own head is that these hallmarks are interconnected and they are coordinately affected by a network of interacting proteins that modulates the biology of aging. When you look, you see things like mTOR interacting with AMP kinase, which is one of the targets of metformin, interacting with insulin signaling, right? These things act in a network. And it just turns out there are some nodes of that network, like mTOR, that seem to be really, really useful for modulating the biology of aging, meaning you can tweak their activity. We have tools to tweak their activity. And when you do that, at least for mTOR, seem to have a pretty good dose range where you can tweak that the activity of that node without causing something catastrophic to happen, because everything's got a dose response. So that's kind of the way I think about this. There's also, I think, an evolutionary argument you can make for why mTOR is a really unique node in this network. So when you think about from back in evolutionary time, a fundamental decision that every organism that has ever existed on this planet has had to make is sense the environment and then make a decision whether or not to have babies. Because if you have babies at the wrong time, that's like the worst evolutionarily useful decision you can make. Because the goal of natural selection and evolution is to pass your genes on to the next generation. And that next generation has to be able to survive. So you don't want to have babies when there's not much food around. You don't want to have babies when it's too hot or too cold. So mTOR, it turns out, is one of the key sensors of the external environment that helps cells make that decision. So mTOR is a growth-promoting, development-promoting protein. And it senses Lots of things in the environment, but the most well studies is, is nutrient status. So let's just stick with food. It senses the external environment, says, okay, how much food is around? There's a lot of food around. Then mTOR gets turned up and that promotes growth and reproduction. So it accelerates development, promotes growth and reproduction. When there's not much food around, mTOR gets turned down. And that's what rapamycin does. Remember, rapamycin turns mTOR down. 
So when there's very low nutrients, mTOR gets turned down. I don't, it gets inactivated, but I don't like that word because some people immediately say mTOR goes to zero. It doesn't. It just gets turned down. And so that, instead of promoting growth and reproduction, shuts down growth and reproduction and promotes a stress-resistant sort of conservation state. There's some evidence that that stress-resistant sort of conservation state actually allows the organism, slows the biology of aging, targets those hallmarks of aging in a way that allows the organism to live longer. You could speculate from an evolutionary perspective that adaptation might have occurred to allow the organism to survive long enough till the environment improves, and then it's a good time to, to have babies. I think that's a plausible explanation for why mTOR seems to be so important for regulating the biology of aging. Yeah, it is. It is quite plausible. I mean, a, a lot of times, uh, uh, you know, an evolutionary explanation can can feel quite compelling, but then it ought to be testable. And I and, and I suppose the way you're the way you're laying it out, maybe folks that have premature aging should show signs of an overactive mTOR protein. They've got higher levels, or you know, some of these like genetic lottery winners that live to 120, like maybe they've got lower levels of mTOR. I mean, is that an observed phenomenon? You can find evidence for that out there. I would say it's not a rock solid sort of uh, correlation. So yes, people have looked in centenarians, people who tend to live to be 100, and you can find evidence that things in the mTOR pathway, the genetic variants in that pathway are enriched in those people. You know, is that really compelling data? It's certainly consistent with the hypothesis, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, the most compelling evidence that, that, that you might hope for. So, yeah, I agree with you completely, though. You can, you can come up with explanations for observations that fit an evolutionary theory, and, you know, oftentimes they're wrong. That's why I say it's plausible, but, but we don't know. Uh, but the observation that inhibiting mTOR beneficially modulates the biology of aging, at least across all of the labor common laboratory models, that's rock solid. There's no question about that. And I would say in this field where there's not a lot that's rock solid, to be completely honest with you, rapamycin and mTOR stands out as one of the things everybody believes. You talk to other scientists in the field, there's no controversy, there's no question, because so many labs have seen this over and over and over and over. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on, and we want to back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Inyaki Beringer. He's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back.
as long as we're toying with the um, this sort of evolutionary fabric, because it, it does give you, you know, I'll, I'll say that it's a novel argument actually in my in my travels around the subject. Far more common is the aging just got overlooked by evolution argument. The the argument that well, you know, we didn't age ever, so a lot of things weren't selected for, and now that we managed to survive starvation and the other ways we die, there's all these defects that evolution hasn't selected on yet. And that's what aging is. It's just oversight. And here instead, you're saying quite affirmatively that there is kind of a biological clock, which I think intuitively a lot of people have observed, right? I mean, development is a biological clock. And then, you know, in maturity through adulthood, is uh, there ought to be some kind of scheduling going on. So let me comment on that real quickly, because I think this is actually where a lot of confusion happens in, in the field about the evolutionary theories of aging. So I don't think what I said is at all inconsistent with the possibility that aging process itself is an absence of selection, is an overlooking. Because I think what it really boils down to there is where was natural selection acting? Natural selection in what I proposed as a potential explanation for mTOR and rapamycin is acting at the level of when is it a good time to reproduce? It's not necessarily acting at the level of we need to prevent aging. It's saying we need to prevent you from reproducing too soon when it's not a good time to reproduce. So I think you could argue that the consequence of aging still could be an absence of selection. And in fact, if you, you know, again, I try to be agnostic about these things because I don't think we can prove whether aging was selected for or not right now. As, as you sort of said, we need experiments to test that. If you force me to pick a side, I tend to be in the camp that says, you know, aging is probably come about because there was an absence of selection to prevent aging. There's a very interesting sort of version of that that some people call hyperfunction theory. So Misha Blagosklani is a big proponent of this. He actually developed a lot of the thinking around this, which is the idea that things like mTOR, which are these really important growth and development pathways, what aging really is, or at least the pathological manifestations of aging, is the continued expression of those pathways at suboptimally high levels. So you crank up mTOR and development when the environment is good to get you to reproductive age and have as many babies as you can. But there's no reason to shut those off once you've had the babies. And so it's the continued expression of that hyperfunction that leads to the pathological consequences of aging. And you could put that into the hallmarks of aging framework by saying it's the continued expression of mTOR and these other growth pathways that accelerate those hallmarks, which I think fits with the experimental evidence that if we inhibit mTOR, we decelerate those hallmarks, or in some cases actually can block the pathological consequences of those hallmarks. Well, you know, I'm uh, listening as a, of course, enthusiast for the field, but also on behalf of our other listeners as, uh, you know, someone with something at stake here. And, um, you know, the rest of humanity, I guess, does. And it seems like an awful, awfully silly obstacle that uh, the thing's off patent and people don't want to invest in something that might impact the lives of billions of people, right? I mean, and then, you know, the other part of my posture listening to you is as a venture capitalist and an investor and in companies that, that try to accelerate the adoption of novel technologies or, you know, of certain kind of breakthroughs. There's got to be some kind of commercial model that doesn't look like old school pharma that could get that data in and get it enhanced. I mean, arguably, that was a choice made perhaps by Lenny Garanti and colleagues with NAD precursors to not go for an indicated kind of medicalized path, right? But I suppose this one is a highly regulated drug. Right. Yes, yeah, so you can't do that with rapamycin. There's just no way FDA is going to let you start selling that over the counter right now. 
That's actually a, a goal of mine. I would love someday to have enough data on safety of rapamycin used at doses that are appropriate and a timing that's appropriate where you could go to FDA and make the case, okay, this should be an over-the-counter drug because lots of over-the-counter drugs will make you sick if you take them wrong or take too much. Totally. Even the most common ones in the world. I mean, you got to watch aspirin, Tylenol, right? Yeah. I believe that there is a dose level of rapamycin that potentially could have benefits where the side effects would be low enough that it could be sold over the counter, but it's a long path to get there. So I would like to see that happen. Who knows if it ever will. I think what you said about NAD is interesting though, again, or, or in that case, nicotinamide riboside. So there's two things going on there, right? One is you're allowed to sell nicotinamide riboside with no safety data. So they weren't obligated to go get that safety data. It's in the class of what's called generally recognized as safe or grass. There are all these compounds that are grass that you can put in a supplement and you don't have to show safety on. That doesn't mean they're safe. I think it's important for people to appreciate that. They're generally recognized as safe until they're not. Oh, it's a bizarre American artifact, isn't it? I mean, I can find any kind of mushroom under a tree somewhere and call that a food, but not medicine. But I think you're right. I mean, I think it was a, a conscious decision that like clinical trials are hard. They're expensive. We would love to know whether nicotinamide riboside actually works. But you know what? We're going to sell it because we don't have to do the clinical trials. Again, I'm very, very skeptical of NAD precursors as a, at least a potent a molecule or, or class of molecules for health span. But there is some reason to think they could be. Like, I'm not saying there's no data to suggest that. I'm just very skeptical that they'll move the needle. But there's nothing wrong. I'm not trying to say they did anything wrong. Like, that's the system. That's how it's set up. A company's job is to go make money. So yeah, absolutely. You can market those molecules. Where I think the gray area is in this field in particular is where do you draw the line ethically between making claims that are supported by what you know and making claims that mislead people? And again, people can have different opinions about that. The legalities here are very gray. The reality is FDA doesn't enforce the legalities for supplement companies and claims they're able to, they do make. They don't really enforce that very often. So I would say many of the people marketing longevity supplements step way over that line of what is a legitimate claim to make. So, you know, is it is it legitimate to call something a healthy longevity drug when there's no data to support that in people? I would say you probably shouldn't. I'd say that's misleading at least, right? Well, let's get into another hornet's nest then, since you are um, a happy warrior on these topics. So, you know, the, the, um, the quantitative endpoints, or I think what some folks refer to as the uh, I don't know, biological aging or, uh, you know, measurements of, of biological age metrics of different kinds. There's, I mean, there's a whole family of them. Maybe, maybe you need all of them. Maybe there's one that's a killer one. I mean, care to characterize and opine a bit on, on how should we measure this stuff? I try to be open-minded, right? So, so what I would say is there are multiple ways that you can measure some of the hallmarks of aging and develop what people call clocks that can predict chronological age. And that, that's most widely talked about in terms of epigenetics, which are just chemical marks on top of the genome. So epigenetic clocks are the largest class, but you can do this with lots of other types of biological data. You can do that with blood markers, for example. You can do skin clocks just by taking pictures of people and looking at their skin aging. So it's not only epigenetics that are used. So what I would say is all of these clocks are querying part of the biological aging process. Some of them query more than one hallmark, some of them don't. So I believe that it is possible to measure biological aging. I believe that that conceptually should be possible. I also worry 
There are aspects of biological aging that we don't currently understand that aren't reflected in the hallmarks. And because we don't know about those things, we don't know to put them in our clock. I can't point to what they are because, you know, if I'm right, we don't know what they are. But I worry that that's the case and that any clocks we're developing today are going to be certainly imperfect, uh, maybe fatally flawed. I don't know that that's true, but I worry that that's the case because they're only measuring a, a, a piece of the, the biology of aging. But I think they're useful tools experimentally for sure. I'm just not sure that any of them yet are actionable. And what I mean by actionable is you can go take this age test. It's going to give you an answer and tell you what to do. What should you do if you find that your biological age is 10 years older than your chronological age? Currently, what we've got are companies that are marketing these tests to consumers, but the actionable piece is missing. What are you told to do? Eat a healthier diet, exercise, get better sleep, right? Sure. Great. I mean, that's good. And if these things motivate people to do that, fantastic. But beyond that, I don't think we have a lot of actionable data at this point. Hopefully we'll get there. So then I think you're asking like, what's the best one? I don't know that there is a best one. My feel is that the best ones will incorporate multiple types of data, epigenetics, blood chemistry, functional measures of aging. Well, I think it also speaks to the general nature of the interventions that we like. You know, if on the good list in our conversation here, we've got diet, exercise, sleep, and happiness, mindfulness, we've got rapamycin, maybe there's some other stuff, but they're all very general. They seem to work across the entire system. You know, there's not like a targeted way to boost your immune system or something. Yeah, right? I don't know that that's true. So I think there's a personalized component here that, that we don't really talk about because we can't, again, there's nothing real actionable yet that we can do. So let's just say, I mean, I think, again, exercise, probably going to be beneficial for most people. There may be some of these rare people where, you know, they're going to have a catastrophic heart attack, right, and die. That's actually another thing that I, I like to do just because I like to poke the bear sometimes. But if you had a drug that gave you all the benefits of exercise and you tried to get that approved by FDA, you wouldn't even get through the door. The side effects of exercise are so bad, you would not even get through the door at FDA. <laughs> and people don't really think about that, right? We think about things like dietary interventions and exercise as these safe interventions that everybody can do. And again, I love exercise. I put that as number one on my list. But I think it is, you know, it's useful to think about the, the side effects we're willing to tolerate from exercise, and we don't even worry about it. And so why shouldn't we maybe tolerate side effects like that from a drug, if it gives you the same benefits? And I'm not saying, saying we have an exercise drug, but if we did, maybe we'd want to be able to tolerate those side effects. Yeah, people would be complaining about how it made them sore for 12 hours, like the vaccines for COVID or whatever. So yes, absolutely. Okay, so that was sort of a tangent. But so you were saying that they are more personalized potentially than, than we understand. So these aren't just general purpose. I think rapamycin is an interesting case, right? So again, I always say we need the data to know for sure that rapamycin actually will improve health span in people or lifespan. But health span, I think, is the most important. We need that data. I am personally convinced that rapamycin will improve health span for some people, but I'm not convinced it will improve health span for most people. Certainly don't believe it will improve health span for all people. So how do we start to get towards that personalized sort of information? I actually think that's where some of these clocks or measurements of aspects of biological aging can be very useful. Given what we know about mTOR and rapamycin and its molecular mechanisms of action, if we have the right tools, we can make predictions about which people are likely to benefit from rapamycin. 
Well, at the most basic level, let's see if I'm understanding. If I were a person with a hyperactive mTOR production system, you'd want to get to me fast. But there may be some folks who, you know, they're going to age slowly anyway. Drug's not going to change anything. Yeah. And maybe it would actually make it worse because if you've got, let's just, I mean, this is very simplistic. Let's just say you naturally have very, very low mTOR activity, right? For your age. Rapamycin might make it too low and it actually becomes detrimental. So again, I think that's where we would like to get with some of these tools so you can actually start to do some personalized intervention. And I think there are people, there are smart people thinking about this. I really think the group at Singapore that includes Brian Kennedy and, and Andrea Mayer are really some of the leaders in this. They're really trying to do population level clinical trials and incorporate biomarkers to kind of start to figure this out. It's the really, really early days here. And, and I think it's important for people to appreciate that. So fascinating. Clearly more attention needs to come to, to wrap your favorite, your favorite compound. You must dream about it. Again, I talk about it because, because I, you know, obviously I believe, you know, I believe in it. Some of it's my own data, but I, I, first of all, I would say, I think it's happening. I think, and for the field in general, it's happening. I'm not worried about trying to get the word out. I'm like, I'm not trying to say everybody should take rapamycin, right? I think. Well, clearly not. And for the reasons you gave, I mean, it could be positively dangerous to give it to someone who had. I would actually like to see something better than rapamycin. If you really want to know my biggest concern about the field as a whole right now, So I'm very optimistic. I think especially with the influx of funding that's coming in, the field is really at, you know, this hockey stick moment where we're, you know, we've been going like this and we're going to be going like that in terms of research. Yeah. I mean, the dog longevity lady was just on, uh, on John Stewart last weekend. Yeah. And I mean, and you know, there are foundations coming in with large amounts of money getting to be more recognition at, at the governmental levels, although that's been slow, but it's happening. So I'm very optimistic about that. My concern though is that. The field also has become narrow in the last decade, I would say. You know, when I first came in, you know, when I was this graduate student, younger version of myself, the field was at a really cool time because people were doing large scale, unbiased identification of new things that affected aging. And that's how we got to the hallmarks of aging. But, and I like the hallmarks, even though they're imperfect, but I think one unanticipated consequence of the hallmarks is Once you formalize something like that and you give these things names, it's really hard for people to think outside of that. I was going to say box, but everybody shows the hallmarks as a circle. That circle, right? It's really hard for people to think outside that circle. And what has happened is it's gotten really hard to get anything funded in the field that you can't fit into that paradigm. So again, I can't prove that there's something outside of that that we don't know about that affects the biology of aging, but I'm pretty darn sure there's a lot that we don't know about yet. And nobody's looking for it because you can't get money to do it in the current paradigm or it's too hard. They like to think about what they know. And it's hard for people to say, okay, how do I try to discover what I don't know? And so I would really like to see more people think about that because I worry that, you know, maybe we're not going to be able to do better than rapamycin until we figure out what we're missing. And the evidence I would point to for that, to to support that that might be the possibility is that the two largest interventions for increasing lifespan and health span in mice, and I'm going to leave out knocking out genes, knocking down genes, non-genetic interventions, are caloric restriction, which you can increase lifespan up to about 50% in a mouse through caloric restriction. Do you know when the first studies showing that caloric restriction could extend lifespan in mice were done? I think it's quite some time back, isn't it? 1930s-ish. <laughs> almost 100 years. So the best intervention for increasing lifespan in a mouse was discovered 100 years ago. Rapamycin, second best non-genetic intervention, 
was first shown to increase lifespan in mice in 2009. Why haven't we done better? Maybe it's because that's kind of the best we're going to do with this network. I don't know that that's the case, but maybe. And the other thing that I think is concerning is if you look at where most of the research in the field today, we haven't talked about epigenetic reprogramming, which is kind of an interesting topic. Probably won't have time to do that today. But uh, with the exception of epigenetic reprogramming, almost all of the research in the field today is studying things that have a smaller effect size than rapamycin. The vast majority of dollars are studying things that have a smaller effect size than rapamycin. Let's put it this way. I mean, it is a research program for the next generation of of curious and and brilliant uh, academics. I mean, and and there's folks who are incredibly interested in longevity and your call to arms is go break that circle and go figure out what's really going on. So so I gave a talk at, there was a conference in Copenhagen called the the Aging Research and and, uh, Drug Discovery Conference, ARDD, really um, important conference in the field. That was basically the talk I gave. I was supposed to talk about the Dog Aging Project in the last minute. I was like, nah, I'm going to talk about something else. And that was basically what I, what I did was I said, look, here's what I think might be a problem. Here's some reasons to believe there's undiscovered country out there. You young people, go find it. I mean, I think that's a beautiful place for us to end with this, uh, this call to action. Uh, people got to get out and do the work. It's not in their medicine cabinet, not just yet. But it's inspiring, actually. I mean, it's, it's really very inspiring. Yeah. Thank you very much for talking with us, man. And I'll, I'll tell you, you the, thing, the thing that makes me most excited is how many really, really smart, talented young people have come into the field. So we've got the people who can go out and do it. I wish to God I was 30 years younger and coming into the field now because there's so much cool stuff to be discovered. But I'm energized by the fact that there are so many really, really smart and talented people coming into the field. Well, hopefully some of them are listening to this conversation and, and they'll be able to tell the story of how they brushed rushed Professor Caberline over a podcast and, and it inspired them to go, <laughs> go, do, go do great things. Thank you so much for being on uh, the, the program with us. Absolutely. It's been fun.